Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Frank, welcome to the show. It's good to have you with us. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be with you. Excellent. So... Given your long and illustrious career in business and so on, maybe for the benefit of the listeners, briefly talk us through your background. Okay, I will. And the hardest part is to be brief when you. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> oh, you've made 20 moves back and forth across the country and run 10 companies, but I'm going to try to do this. First, maybe the most important thing is I grew up on a farm in upstate New York went to Cornell undergraduate and graduate school and zipped off to the West Coast where the palm trees were and went to work for a company called Carnation um, in Los Angeles. Okay. Went into an accelerated training program and found very quickly that my skill was really conceptual new product development, marketing. And so I was fortunate to work on the hot products at that time, like Carnation Instant Breakfast. And then I started jumping you know, up the ladder by moving to other companies. I went to Hunt Wesson and I ran the Alaskan King Crab business and uh, Snowdrift Solid Shortening Brands, did a lot of very interesting and unique advertising. Then I went for about three years in the health and natural foods business because I was trying to start my own company. Yes. And then health, health and natural foods were new at that time. So, um, and then from there, um, I ended up going to, in the baking business in Oro Wheat Foods, and it was a division of Continental Grain, and they vertically integrated, started buying all these great um, whole grain bakeries across the country. My deal was I would teach them marketing if they would give me a shot at general management. That happened. I went to Seattle, Washington, and my first general manager job and found that I, I loved that. Then I ended up you know, going to the headquarters. We bought all these bakeries across the country and I went to the headquarters, um, which was then Arnold Baking in Greenwich, Connecticut, and then made a big jump. I went to Mattel to head up the electronics division, the video game business. And they had invented a new machine called Intellivision to go yes. up against Atari. Um, and um, did some did an unusual campaign with George Plimpton directly against Atari, then said, okay, this is my entrepreneurial shot, took my bonus check, went to the Silicon Valley with my, my plan in hand and was able to raise about $4 million from Marvin Davis at 20th Century Film Corporation and started the video, Fox Video games, which we had for three years, sold it back to Fox. And then it went from there, big jump again, went to HBO and ran the pre-recorded video cassette business. That was a wonderful time when that business was growing. You know, we were able to acquire a lot of content. It was just a great and apply all of the marketing techniques. Um, and then um, I got the offer to go to Reebok, um, when Reebok was having problems to go and be the president of Reebok Brands. And that's when really, you know, I oversaw the whole development of the pump and the famous bungee jumping, yeah. uh, bungee jumping commercial, taking a lot of risks here. Then I went to turn around a company in the, um, uh, called Skybox, which was in the trading card business, totally different business. They had lost $80 million. We did a turnaround, took it public. Everybody made a lot of money. Then I went to Gibson Greenings, another turnaround, eventually sold it to American Greenings. And then, of course, my fondest failure, I went to Indian Motorcycle. I'm an avid motorcyclist, as is my well wife. And we went to kind of save the Indian company, raised a lot of money and spent about five years but couldn't turn it around. Eventually, however, Polaris ended up owning it. Um, and then they went from that to really being a senior partner in a uh, 
a strategic consulting firm called Parthenon in Boston for about nine years, going all over the world doing strategic planning exercises for large consumer uh, product companies. And I've been on boards on the board of a very multi-billion dollar food company um, called Treehouse Foods for 16 years. And currently I've had for six years a very successful toy company called Schilling, um, where we just invented a couple of incredible products. And so I'm on boards and still playing around as a kid in the toy business. So there you have it. That is an amazing career. Many interesting things. But I want to know this. And it may seem like an obvious question. What drove you to move around so much? Was it opportunity or the fact you didn't feel that you were getting what you wanted in a certain role or you had finished the task? What was the driver here? Yeah, it was really a combination of that. Um, one, I got easily bored. So that was, <laughs> I had to be careful. <laughs> and I constantly wanted to, you know, learn new things. Yes. And then I found that I could move much faster by jumping to um, from company to company and going into new uh, situations. And the other part I found, I loved the challenge. I mean, it was absolutely exciting to me to go learn a whole new business and see if I could succeed in that business. And then when I found out, wow, the common denominator was the consumer. And I had a great intuitive feel for the consumer and consumer behavior, loved all that product development stuff. And I found that was transferable to company to company. I'll make one other note there and we'll come back to it. I also learned the importance of strategic planning early on in my career and that was a key every company i went into so let's I, talk about that because it seems yeah. like a big point you are obviously successful enough in many varied places so i have two questions related to this and let's start with the one around strategic planning you go into these new places and you set them in a new direction how did you go about doing that well, the first thing i did was said okay we're going to develop a strategic plan now um, I was fortunate I had worked early on with Bain and McKinsey. They were in companies I was in, and I learned what a real strategic plan looked like and how to do it. So I would bring in frequently an, an outside firm. And of course, we would study, you know, all of the metrics and the data of our existing business. The key then was understanding the environment that we were, you know, competing in all of our competition. And then forecasting, of course, what was going to happen in the next 10 years that was going to impact us. Then the other key to that was idea generation in terms of alternative growth strategies. And again, nobody brings you into a company other than they want you to provide growth. Yes. And so we then would study, you know, the alternative um, growth uh, plans set on a strategy and I, it involved the entire organization. So when we came out of the plan, the organization owned it. We were all aligned, let me say, including the board. And then it was next, you know, again, to attract young people, it was critically important to have mission, values, and a purpose that they really bought onto, or I couldn't attract the talent I needed. You know, and frequently coming out of a strategic plan is you come with a new organizational structure you need you have some talent that's obsolete you have some you need to you need to reposition and then you have talent that you really need to attract so we would then go from there to accountability which translating that plan into you know data and metrics all throughout uh, the organization so we could power steer um, the company Next was agility in this market, particularly used to be able to do the strategic plan and you would have it for a year. Now you got to review it every three months and be very agile and willing to make major changes. And then the last thing, of course, was the culture of the company, getting the right culture to succeed. And so that was kind of, if you will, in a nutshell, the process, the strategic planning process I employed in almost every company I walked into. So when you went into these new companies, there was never a situation whereby things were going well and you just had to keep it going well. There's always 
a situation whereby you had to bring in a new strategic plan and implement it? Yes, the only one was really HBO video where things were going well and they brought me in over um, a CEO who had built the company but didn't have the vision to carry it to the next level, which was, you know, from rental to selling videotapes, etc. But in almost all of these other situations, like in the case of, you know, Reebok, Reebok was starting to get hit by Nike. It was losing market share. It didn't have new products. It had three-year product development cycle. In the case of um, the Skybox, the Skybox was losing, had lost $80 million. And that was a turnaround, you know, which we spun and took public. So in most of these cases, um, you know, um, it, the companies had definite problems. And yeah. that's when they called you. So I've been involved in turnarounds as such, and they're very high intensity, high energy initiatives. It takes a lot out of you. Would you say that you like that kind of work because you seem to be drawn to it? Yeah, well, I, I used to kid. I said the first one I got into, they said, you know, how do you, I, I looked up in the internet and I called myself, it said, you're a turnaround artist. And I said, with the first company, it was just bad due diligence. I didn't recognize the company. <laughs> <laughs> it was in so much trouble. But then I found, I, I liked it because the when they know the company is in trouble they know you've got to make dramatic moves and what i found i was good at is making assessing the situation quickly again with outside analytical help and then making very fast and sometimes people would say risky moves i had to make decisions on people very quickly and on new strat bold new strategies and that part I absolutely, you know, I absolutely loved. And it, when you spin a company, you actually create, can create a lot more value sometimes than yes. just growing a company. And it also seems that you developed a type of turner on playbook that you took from company to company. So you knew what were the pieces that you needed to get done, the analysis and so on, the culture, the accountability and so on. And you use that playbook. Switching gears here, going into each of these companies, you don't have relationships, I'm guessing. How do you go about developing relationships fast enough so you can implement those changes? Because you've moved around quite a lot. It's not as if someone in, the, in an example who spent 20 years at a company, it can use those 20 years of relationships to execute a change. How were you able to build those new relationships? Yeah, that's a, well, that's a good point. Um, let me say the first thing that I would would be known for is I would take, you know, I say, know your consumer and know your customer. So I would often take the first 30 days and do nothing but travel to the divisions, to uh, the big customers, meeting with the customers, meeting with the sales force, meeting with the people down in the organization that were closest to my ultimate consumer and my customer. And so I developed my own feel for the business and what business was the company, you know, really in. And then I would come back and sit in the seat, you know, in the CEO seat. But what I would do is once I had made an assessment and often with the help of outside people of what the situation was, I would, and I had a plan, I gathered the whole company together and I would tell them, here's the situation. And sometimes exposing them to financial information they'd never heard before and said, here's why we've got to make, you know, some moves. And here are the moves that we're going to, you know, the moves that we're going to make. So a lot of that was establishing relationships throughout the company very quickly by having a playing a very open hand and having a very open kind of uh, you know office door you get to know every you get to know the organization and the people and you build the relationships much much faster than a typical person who sits in their office and talks to their five key people so yes that key part of my strategy 
So in a manner of speaking, and I'm using this analogy given the day it is, you are like a, like a politician moving around and having these town halls and talking to people, hearing what they were saying, but also notice something quite distinctive in your style. You were never dictating what needed to be happening. You were trying to get people to trust you and show them why something needed to happen. And I find that interesting because when someone is moving around as you have, you know, sometimes there's a pressure to get things done by forcing people. But I get the sense that you started by trying to build relationships first and making the case. Is that a good way of thinking about it? Absolutely. And the other key was listening. And, and I try to tell young people, develop the skill of listening faster than the fastest talking person in the room. <laughs> yeah, so, I like that. That's a good one. I, yeah. So I, so, you know, I would go and I would really listen. And that frequently what I would do is if I had a group and I had been listening to them and we had kind of whiteboarded what they were saying, that I would write that down and I'd play it back to them and say, is this what you, do I have this accurately? Is this what, you know, you, yes. you told me? So when they know they're listening and then starting to participate in the strategy, so, and that's so critical so that they own the strategy. You, It's not a consulting company. It's not you. The organization owns it. So When you speak and you talk about the tools you use, there are a lot of tools that consulting firms actually use in terms of the way they bring ownership of an idea to the executive team. And you mentioned earlier you had worked with some consulting firms, but it seems like the principles and the way they influence people played a big role in the way you developed as an executive. Is that a good way to think about it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. You're, you're totally correct. Yes. Yeah, because it's interesting. For example, you went to Reebok. HBO, Indian Motorcycle, everyone knows that, very different companies. So it's not as if you were relying on institutional knowledge of a sector to gain credibility, because what you learned at Reebok Brands from an institutional perspective, a sector perspective, couldn't be taken to HBO video. So there were some general principles of leadership that you applied. Do you have a way of summarizing some of those general principles? Um, boy, that's a... <laughs> That's a good question, and and probably best answered by the people that uh, you know the people that reported to me. Um, yes. One is number one is clarity of your clarity of the plan and the the mission, purpose, and your values. You know, uh, you know of the company. So, so the, that I found was getting that absolutely clear at the beginning where yes. everybody understood it and generally agreed upon it got me way down the way down the track so people knew here's the path here's where we're going and here's how our success is going to be measured so i would say that that was a critical part then the second part accountability well translating that plan into metrics right down the organization so the people knew what they were responsible for and the other part of it is i'm just a big advocate of reviews with you know reviews with employees so that yes. they know where they stand and also part of it is for each person a develop a personal development plan so they were those were the kind of the critical elements so you have a book out called jump first think fast this book yes. i'm guessing from what i've read of it and having read the book is it summarizes all these principles so you've been in business for a very long time how do you think leadership has changed since you've started and as you've seen it progress? Good. Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, it, it has changed very much from kind of a, a dictatorial um, approach that your top management group knows the yes. right path and that they are basically are dictating to the organization you know, the path that they're going to follow. 
And the big change is, of course, is developing that path together and getting real, uh, real buy-in. Let me yeah. tell you the other one that's critical is if you're going to attract talent today, you you absolutely, I mean, you've got to have, you know, the, the mission. They want to see that your company is doing something that provides good to humanity as well. So that used to not be important. Today, that's, you know, that's very important to attract talent. And it's got to be genuine. So that's another, that's a big that is a big shift from, I almost say, from strict capitalism, yes. you know, and the shareholder to much more to the stakeholder and saying, if we do well by the stakeholders and we have a great company that people really want to work for, I think we'll, we'll be able to generate the profits and the performance. I like that. So in your book, you have the example of the grumpy old Ed Baker at Horowit which I think was a very good story. Maybe recount that for the listeners and the lesson from that. Yes. Well, it was my first general manager job in Seattle, Washington. And I have to say I had a great mentor who took a big risk in putting me in at a very young age into the general manager job. And, you know, you've got thousands yeah. of people, a bakery, you've com complex operations, uh, you know, transports, all of this. And and he said to me, look, there is an old baker there that you're probably going to want to fire. So I go there and, you know, the key always is staying very open minded. So I meet the old baker and, you know, we start a relationship and I start to listen to him and I quickly find out he knows more about fermentation than anybody alive. And that's like the wine business. In the yes. bread business, fermentation is, is absolutely critical. And it's almost, it's an art. So then I started talking to him about new products, ideas he had that nobody ever listened to. And then he listened to my ideas. And what happened was we caught this trend, which was high fiber, yeah bread products and we developed the first high fiber bread product that tasted good called branola b-r-a-n-n-o-l i remember that actually and, i remember that and that product went from seattle washington in our area spread all over the country and eventually it's peaked at about 500 million in one brand and one product so the grumpy old, and he also encouraged me to learn, you know, I, I, he ended up encouraging me to go to uh, the University of, yeah, it's, it's called the Manhattan, it's the baking school. So I actually went for three weeks to a baking school so that I could better understand the whole process. But it, it, it's, a, it, it's a great story of, you know. Yes, it's a very good story. I, I want to I understand something here. So. Why wasn't this head baker bringing this idea out earlier to the previous management? I think they were pretty rigid. Yes. They, they weren't listening. Um, you know, I don't think they, they were telling him what to do um, and, not at, and not really asking him. And he was not part of the product development process. They'd come up with the ideas and tell him, you know, go execute this yes it sounds as if there was a one-way relationship with him whereby they told yes. him what to do but never took his views into consideration correct i'll tell you i have to tell you one other baking story and that is um I, so i'm running the seattle operation i get a call from our bakery in los angeles and they said frank they're going to strike your plant in one hour a one hour strike. one, <laughs> one hour, hour. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a sympathy strike, you know, because we're, our plan is being struck. And I have thousands of pounds of dough rising yes. in dough troughs. And they don't care that there's a strike. Yet the fermentation is going to keep rising. So, you know, I immediately um, called our caterer and I said, bring all your catering trucks. And when all the employees come out of the bakery in the hour, 
tell them all of the food is on Mr. O'Connell. So, and then I called all the administrative staff and said, we're going to run the bakery. Of course, everybody thought yes. we were completely crazy. But anyway, um, the, then the, all the, the bakery staff who was out eating food from the truck would help me. They, I'd, I'd come out and I'd say, okay, what do I do now? How do I get the loaves or too large to get through the cutters. So they would say, do this, this, and this. And it was like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. We were we, we were knee deep in bread till we finally slowed the lines down and listened to them and got, you know, got the fermentation right and sent it through the cutters. But I tell you, I worked, it ended up, the strike went a week. I worked and my management team worked every single stage in the bakery. We developed the most incredible relationship with all of those people on the floor. They respected us deeply. And now we understood a lot better what <laughs> what they went yes. through on the floor of the bakery. That's a great story. Let's switch gears to your time at Reebok. I remember reading in your book that I think you joined Reebok around 1988. But the thing that struck me was that they had no new or differentiated products in production and I think you also mentioned that it takes about, I think, two or four years to get products out. So talk me through that. How would a company like Reebok, which knows how the economics of the industry works, how would it get itself into that situation? Yeah, well, you know, it, I, I have to say this. I want to be careful about this. But Nike has a great management staff of yes. really professional people that have been running the company under Phil Knight for some time. In in the case of Reebok, Paul Fireman was the one, you know, who started Reebok. And you've got to say, he did, as an entrepreneur, he did an incredible job, you know, building the company up. But he never had the experience of working inside and managing a company. So what happened was you had all these young um, athletes in, in the company, you know, who really didn't have a lot of management uh, skills. And all of them kind of, uh, Paul was the tribal leader, I used to say, and they spent more time trying to figure out, you know, what would Paul do than what they should do. And so a result, a result, there was no formal development process. They didn't believe in it. It was all kind of random. And it got very bureaucratic because Paul would come in at various points and make decisions in the product. And of course, so when I came in, I kind of blew all of that up and we were desperate. We needed product quickly. So, you know, at one point a, a person came into my office, a designer, not from the outside, but he had this bucket of all of these tubes and fluids. And I said, oh my God, we can never make a shoe out of it. But it triggered my thinking and I wrote a concept for uh, uh, essentially the pump. The key was we yes. needed outside technology. And I found a great firm on the outside called Design Continuum. And they're the ones that really developed very quickly within weeks, the bladder and the pump um, in the tongue. And, you know, and, and then of course the next was the advertising campaign said we need a bold campaign went to the agency said give me a campaign nobody else would ever run and i can't be we can't be on the court next to nike because they're going to win we got to create a new playing field and of course the agency came up with the bungee jump commercial so you had these two jumpers going off the bridge in Oregon, and one wearing Nikes, one wearing Reebok, and only the Reebok guy came back in his shoes. The Nike, you know, guy came back, yes. uh, came back, and it was empty. And of course, it created huge controversy, which ended up one eight of the big networks wouldn't run it. That ended up creating so much publicity and advertising. We did a billion dollars in the Reebok pump, pump in the next twelve months. Wow, that's amazing. So going back to the story, I'm sure the Reebok team was very proud of their own in-house R&D engineering capabilities and so on. When you went out to find this external company to do the development, how was that received within Reebok and how did you manage that? You know, it, um, you know that was difficult. There's no question about it. They were very, you know, took great pride in their internal development and even if today if you go up on the internet they claim 
the internal group claims that they really developed the, yeah. the, the you know the pump if you go up on the website you know of design continue you see the whole process that they followed that really ended up uh, developing the pump so i think you know initially they knew they needed outside technology so that part you know was they accepted that part and then of course they came together because they knew how to make a shoe so they came together with the technology and ultimately ended up developing the shoe but I, and then after i developed another thing called hexalite but i would say it, that was difficult and that was one of the problems of just internal focus um versus going to the outside and really looking for help so the internal pride sometimes can hold you back yes i think that's common in every company right when companies become too successful even when their success is now fleeting the ego holds them back and it seems that in every company you went to you have encountered people like this what's your strategy for dealing with them teams or individuals who are sometimes unwilling to see reality for what it is yeah well you know you have to do any and often i've had to do a quick assessment okay yes. of the of that talent and and i have to say you know i'm known for making fairly quick tough decisions so first i would take the group that was basically flexible agile open and was going to support the new direction and understood it would support it then you've got a group on the other end that basically can be vocal or not which don't support the strategy yes. and can be a negative factor and I would take them out of the company. I mean, I just made that decision that they were gonna hold us back. And then the group in the middle, you kind of sits on the fence and sees if the new strategy is gonna work. But yeah. I, I would bring in new blood and I would take out, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I just had to take out the people that were gonna hold us back. Yes. And it seems you obviously had a playbook for doing that. Let's switch gears to the work you were doing with the motorcycle company, because that's a very interesting story about how you got involved. And it seems like it was also a personal interest that you had. That it wasn't just a business opportunity. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, both my wife and I are avid motorcyclists. She rides her own bike and we've ridden for you know years now thousands of miles a year in the united states and around the you know around the world so i was an avid motorcyclist from a young age and i also always knew of course either the whole uh, story of harley davidson and met all their executives but you know i knew a lot about um the indian story and the whole yes. iconic brand if and for somebody in marketing, when you see the company was out of business for 50 years, but when you would do a study of the best well-known brands and images, India would, would always pop up. There were such strength in that, yes. you know, in that brand. So, so when I decided to go there and, you know, try to, you know, do the turnaround, it was like a mission and it was like not a job it was like working for a brand you know kind of a strange thing yeah. can we save can we save this brand you know and in the end we made a lot of progress did a lot of things but could you needed a billion dollars to do it now fortunately polaris now owns it and is doing a wonderful job with it so one of the things that i found interesting about the story in the book is that i would have thought a brand as powerful and well-known as Indian would have clear stake in terms of who owned the rights to the brand. But it seems there was a lot of haggling back and forth, eventually going to a court to figure out who owned the brand, who had the license, who had the rights. So how does a brand like Indian get into that situation in the first place? Well, it's a good, you know, the history is, is pretty fascinating. So when it went out of business, various people started claiming that they had the rights and in fact some people actually sold part of the rights and um you know around the world various people claimed yes wow claimed. i mean it was crazy 
And actually, I went, a guy in North Carolina who had just raised millions of dollars to build an Indian plant in North Carolina, his name was Zangi, had moved to, to North Carolina. And I actually went and met with him. It was crazy. You know, he, I, I met with him. He got his attorney on the phone to convince me that they own, his attorney, Washington, that they own the rights. Well, about Two weeks later, he was arrested. You know, and was then arrested. Why? Yeah, he, he for for fraudulently uh, claiming he owned the rights and actually was licensing and selling it for Indian. So, uh, but but what happened was then the court stepped in. The federal court said this is an American icon, well-known brand, and they spent probably three or four years going uh, actually all over the country and the world and cleaned up all of the rights and then auctioned them off in the federal court, you know, in, yes. um, in Oregon. Yeah. That's an amazing story. It's hard to believe because it is true. We always take for granted that well-known brands will have clean control over their rights and licenses, but that isn't always the case, right? And it yes. takes a lot of effort to bring these things under control. So in the case of Indian Motorcycle, you mentioned that there was a clear plan to bring it back, but the cost would have been too high. It was like a billion dollars or something like that? Yes. Yeah. And is that the Here's reason this. you feel that the turnaround didn't work as well? Yes. Well, first, they made um, the rights were bought by Summerfield Johnson, who owned the Coca-Cola bottling company. Yes. And he... And, you know, he knew brands, but he didn't know motorcycling. And so then he he really made a strategic error is that he bought a company called California Motorcycle Company, which was a customized Harley shop, yes. not a company that did OEM or understood engineering and OEM manufacturing. Yes, yes. They, they they started the company up and they were amazing. They first they designed a beautiful bike on the outside, but the quality in, of you know of the fenders were breaking and and you know the uh, if the in the production line they knew how to keep it yes. running. They'd go to the hardware store and get parts, but that put out a thousands of bikes into the marketplace that then had to be rebuilt. And at a great, you know, under, you know, at a great cost under warranty. So when I went in, I saw that there wasn't the engineering. So I started traveling the world, hiring and putting in professional staff and professional people out of Harley. And, but that was like trying to start a whole separate no, I can imagine. company. That's you know, really difficult. In. Yeah. And, and it goes back to one of my tenants, you know, it's much easier to figure out the strategy than shift the culture of a company. I, yes. You know, and so that was one where shifting the culture and, um, and we made, I mean, they did a great job. We made a lot of progress, but you couldn't in Gilroy, California, you needed to be in Detroit, Michigan, where all of the engineering and, you know, all the manufacturing and fabricating stuff was there. And they were doing crazy things like they had all these suppliers. They were stringing the wheels themselves instead of buying complete front ends like the automotive industry does and whatever. So, so I'm going to ask yes. what may seem a very obvious question here. The people who bought the Indian license and branding and rights and so on, Surely they would have known enough about manufacturing to know the difference between building bikes with a customization shop versus proper manufacturing. Why didn't they notice that this would cause a problem? I think, you know, I think just Summerfield Johnson, his organization, he had never been involved making a you know, a piece of machinery, metal yes. and engines and, you know, and whatever, you know. So, you know, and even I went in, I'd never been in the business, you know, either of ma making, you know, in the automotive business and whatever. 
But as soon as I started hiring people out of the automotive industry and out of Harley, I quickly saw, whoa, here's a big, there's a huge difference here. So he, I think he just didn't know. So. Yeah, I don't know that happens. He's also trusting his advisors. It's not just, it's his poor decision-making. Guys like this rely on people to advise them, and probably they also didn't see the requirements to put in place a proper automotive manufacturing capability. Correct. Yes. Okay, very good. Yes. So I found that story about Indian fascinating because to me it shows how fast an iconic brand can die, but it also shows me the power of a brand even when the product is not meeting standards. It was amazing. People would put up with, you know, the poor quality of the bikes and the bikes breaking down, you know, and yes. still and still love the bike. I mean, it was just incredible to me, you know, how the brand was much more, I, I said, more powerful than management. You know? Yeah, it's quite amazing, the power of a brand. Because, you know, oftentimes when you read books about leadership and turnarounds and so on, there's not a lot of emphasis on knowing the customer and consumers. But yes. if you think about it, a brand is the relationship you have with your customers. And I think too few executives focus on understanding their customers enough. Do you think that is a, a generally good assessment of things? Oh, yeah, it, it's a very good assessment of things. And that's why I'm just so hyper focused when I go into companies in terms of learning about the consumer you know, and the customer. And again, the consumer is the ultimate person who's using the product. The customer is typically the one who's in, in the, uh, you know, owns the retail outlets or selling in, you know, and whatever. But, you know, at first, you know, I always, I eat the product, I ride the product, I wear all the shoes, the competitive shoes, and I force all my executives to say, you've got to have a visceral understanding and intuitive feel for the product. And then we do all, and then we do all of the research, you know, um, and in, in, so you, you'll find it interesting. I did a major study of the Harley brand versus the Indian brand, and there were clear differentiations that gave us great hints in the design. The Harley um, person and rider wanted to join a cult. They were looking for some identity. In the case of Indian, the whole Indian history was they were very independent and very yes. independent riders. They'd ride by themselves. They weren't join, looking to join any group. And, and that ended up, you know, those things are critical in understanding your consumer and the brand so what's interesting about this right let's just unpack this there's quite an important point you're making i'm not a motorcycle guy i'm a sports car kind of guy i like supercars if i had to yeah. see a harley on the streets and if i had to see an indian on the streets i wouldn't know that there's a difference in the way consumers that are into motorcycles perceive them so it's almost as if when you're developing a brand, you really have to know what the brand stands for, and you've got to defend that at every point. And I think oftentimes companies struggle because they want to grow. They want to attract new segments, maybe younger, maybe older, maybe different genders and so on. But the challenge is how do they keep the brand loyal to what it stands for while appealing to more people? And I think that's always a difficult trade-off that executives need to make. Yes. Well, and, you know, in Harley struggled with that, you know, has always struggled with that um, because their consumer, of course, was, you know, typically, um, you know, an older consumer. They purposefully maintain kind of the bad boy, you know, type of imagery. Yes. Um, and of course, their problem was the brand was getting older by an average of about four or five years every single year in terms of their audience. So they made a number of attempts to try to, you know, draw in a younger, um, you know, a younger audience, include, you know, smaller bikes, different bikes. Yes. And then they bought Buell, which was a sport bike, which was a great, well-engineered young bike. The two internal cultures of Buell and Indian couldn't get, or Buell and Harley 
couldn't get along together. So Harley still fights this age in, in, and how are they going to attract young people in a different audience, but not lose their, their bad boys? So yes, it's a difficult one because on the one hand you want to grow, you want to be appealing to new segments, but sometimes your existing segment of consumers clash with the new segments you're pursuing. So I think it's always going to be a challenge for companies. But switching gears here, I read something in your book and I wanted to confirm this because maybe I misunderstood this. In the book, it says that you were Parthenon Group's first client. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. That's interesting because you know, I used to be a consulting partner in my previous life many years ago, but I don't think I've ever in my life read anywhere in the world of a company that was the consulting firm's first client because it's a fascinating relationship and you kept the relationship for many years. You eventually ended up working at Parthenon Group. Yes, and I'm I'm still very close to Bill Ackermeyer, who is you know was the founder and eventually sold it to each EY. In fact, I'm yes. spending the day with him tomorrow and an entrepreneur. But what happened was when I was at Reebok, we'd hired Bain, yeah. and um, to do a consulting project. And there's where I met both then Bill Ackermeyer and his partner John Rutherford, who then started Parthenon. So I knew them, and that's when I was going to do, you know, the uh, turnaround of the trading card company, and you know, I immediately hired them, and and I had the greatest force of super people helping me because at that point they didn't have many clients. Yes. So, but yes. but I have been they have been with me, you know, I've hired them in almost every company I've been in, but they will credit me with saying Frank was our, was our first client, you know. That's so, an amazing story. And I love the yeah. fact that the relationship continued because oftentimes, I mean, I've seen it many times, CEOs will replace a consulting relationship just to see if there's something better out there. Yeah. That's yeah, very common, you know, but you haven't done that. You've kept close to them over 17 years. Yes. And, you know, and knowing all of the partners and whatever, and, you know, and I, you know, particularly like with Bill Ackmeyer form, you know, the, the firm, you know, I would, you know, I may have like, let's say um, in the greeting card business, I knew I was going to have a tough board meeting, you know, Bill would yes. fly in the night before sometimes and come to the board meeting with me, you know, as, you know, kind of an expert on strategy and whatever. So they were always there, you know, whenever I, you know, whenever I needed in, in, in such a bright group of, you know, of people. So, yeah, it, it's been a very close relationship with and with all those partners you know, even today. So, so many of them have, have on the book, you know, I've heard from all of them all over the world now in the book. So, so what was the decision to work with Parthenon where they had just been starting up? They never had a client. Why did you pick them over, say, Bain or McKinsey? Uh, you know, and, and I have dealt with almost all of BCG, Bain yeah. and McKinsey, you know, up to that point. I think a lot of it was, you know, the very, personal relationship about feeling they really cared about me and cared about my business in a very personal kind of way you know yes so it it was just that caring and understanding and and always being able to be open and honest you know with all my trials and tribulations with the, you know with the companies and and then they gave me brilliant advice so yeah it's amazing because you know the reason i wanted to talk about partnering at the end is because it exemplifies something that we take for granted in business and life and that's the issue of trust you stuck with them because you trusted them that they would rise to the occasion for you and and it's an interesting thing because all relationships are based on trust and here's an example where the relationship has stayed for 17 years you helped them get into business and then you ended up working for them it's a great story. You don't see 
many stories like that where relationships last 17, 20 years. No, you're 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 absolutely right. And there and as you know, those relationships then are really are absolutely treasured. So <laughs> Yeah, it's quite an amazing thing. You know, whenever I, I speak to people, one of the things I look at is how long they maintain relationships. Because it says a lot about someone if they have the ability to maintain senior relationships for 20, 30 years. Because clearly you are obviously paying them to work with you but they want to be associated with you as a client as well. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I, I can always serve as just a great, you know, reference for them on any client, you know, that there yes. is, you know, considering them and I, you know, and I can do it in depth. So <laughs> that's quite an amazing. I actually enjoyed speaking to you. You know, I don't know much about Indian motorcycle and so on, but I liked your book a lot. It's very refreshing. It's very positive. And I think some of the lessons you shared are quite powerful. I do like the fact that you had a very distinctive playbook for the way you went in and managed turnarounds. And I really admire the, the focus on the basics. You know, often in strategy and leadership, people get very excited about the latest fad. But as we explore different parts of industries you've worked in and so on, you focused on the basics. You're always focused on the basics and executing well, building relationships and being able to pass on accountability and ownership to the teams around you, which then made it easy for you to exit. And I always say a good mark of a leader is that when he exits, the business doesn't suffer. Yes, yes, good point. And, and you know, one of the things I find because I deal with a lot of entrepreneurs now are building interesting companies, you know, et cetera. And, you know, I always have, that conversation with them on the basics and getting a good strategic plan, no matter how, no matter what size you are or how brilliant you think your idea is, get this plan and process in place. Yeah. We also work with entrepreneurs. And one of the things I always tell them, build a business from the first day with the goal to exit it. It's the most important thing because unless you think about that, you're not thinking about succession planning. It's just a number of things that change in your psychology when you think about exiting. So I'm glad we share the same philosophy. Frank, thank you so much. I absolutely enjoyed that conversation. It was so refreshing. Well, I did as well, Michael. So this was great. And great questions. I love I love the questions. Yeah, I enjoyed the book. I thought it was an amazing book because a lot of the industries you spoke about, uh, industries I know fairly well, but I don't know much about the greeting card business and so on. So from a personal level, it's nice to learn new things. But the thing that struck with me was that um, is your ability to build and keep relationships over a long term. Because I've seen people who have relationships for 20 years, but it's very social only. But the fact that you're involved in business with these people over 20 years means there's definitely some kind of win-win or alignment of interest going on there. And I thought that's interesting for listeners to be exposed to that and to try to build that operating philosophy into their life. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.